I am Plata on the line in Vancouver, British Columbia at thecommentary.ca. While on vacation with his family in Costa Rica in December 2006, Peter Counter witnessed a stranger shooting his father. He hauls his blood-drenched father to safety, and soon after, Peter's sense of time and memory is shattered. In his new book, How to Restore a Timeline on Violence and Memory, Mr. Counter, who joins me now, chronicles having to contend with post-traumatic stress disorder. We see in the consumption of media, old and new, nostalgic and current, just how tinged or immersed in violence everything is for Peter's mind. He has to relive the trauma of his father's shooting again and again, and he illustrates in an often magnificent way the despair and resilience Peter experiences as uh, he pieces together his life once more. The book is often amusing and clever as well as insightful, as Peter thinks critically about staples in popular culture or nostalgic favorites that he revisits, whether they're video games, films, music, or television. I'll ask Peter about some of the themes explored in the book, like dreaming, uh, revenge, and violence. Uh, Peter Counter is a culture critic who writes about television, video games, film, music, mental illness, horror, and technology. He is the author of Be Scared of Everything Horror Essays, and his uh, non-fiction has appeared in The Walrus, All Lit Up, Motherboard, Art of the Title, El- Electric Literature, and the anthology Empty the Pews, Stories of Leaving the Church. For more, visit peterbcounter.com and everythingiscary.com. This uh, new book is published by House of Anansi Press. We spoke one week ago with Peter joining me from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. Please uh, welcome to the Plant Online pro- Program, Peter Counter. Mr. Counter, good morning. Good morning. Thanks guess, so much for having me. I here. guess it's good afternoon where you are in, in Dartmouth there. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's afternoon, coast to coast here. Yeah. Um, as I was talking just before I started, and I, I did this in a, in a social media post about your book, it, it, the book really defies description. Um, and I, I, when I introduce the book in my introduction that I'll put in front of this interview, um, it, it'll be back of the book stuff because um, I really don't want to spoil it for 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 people because it, it, it it's not it's not a book in terms of like I'm I'm going to give something away, but it, it's such a special experience to read what went on in your life, what goes on in your head, and and find that out for oneself. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think that the, the, the Rob Weersma review of the book, I think, sort of touched on that, that, that we're living with you for a bit as we read the book. And for me, at least, that, that was a, a very special experience. Well, thank you. Uh, that means a lot to me to, to hear that. Um, yeah, and it was interesting in terms of that because, you know, I set out to write an essay collection uh, that was also a memoir. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, in in terms of like spending time in my in my life and in my head, you know, I really believe in the the power of of art and literature to um, kind of bring people and lead them on a journey. And and I thought that, you know. Rather than stick to a, a genre or something, I was just going to try and kind of recreate what it feels like to have, uh, or to recreate my own experience mm-hmm. with post-traumatic stress uh, in a in a hypersaturated media landscape. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it actually became kind of a challenge, uh, and it's still a bit of a challenge when I tried to describe the book to people in terms of 
what the genre is because yeah uh it's tough but i'm glad that it worked <laughs> yeah and because ptsd for for a lot of people who who may not understand it i mean i, I I sort of understand it from from having read about it and, and certainly from reading your book. It's not something that, that, that strikes you on a regular basis. I mean, it might strike you on a regular basis, but it's not something that that when you encounter it, say, in your, in your life, um, you, you can take a pill or, or you can do some therapy or, or, or it goes away. It, it comes in certain places, certain times, and, and certainly in, in the course of, of your own experience, after, say, watching certain things or reading certain things or consuming certain music. Is that right? So, uh, yeah, that's certainly my experience. Um, I, I, I don't like the, the term high-functioning, but it's sort of the, what, the way that I think it's kind of uh, commonly thought of. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a very high-functioning relationship with my mental illnesses, so I'm, I'm still good with, like, executive function most of the time, unless I'm you know, in a crisis mode or a trigger or, or have been like, you know, quote unquote triggered. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, uh, sometimes commonly it's like loud noises. There are a few S's in here where I describe, uh, three S's in a row actually, yeah. um, where I describe a, a balloon pop, the sound of a popping balloon, um, sending me into a crisis or something like that. But, uh, yeah, it's, um, it really, I think, I expect it's different for a lot of people, and that's why I try to keep these uh, essays in here and, and the, the whole book very personal to my experience. Um, because uh, one thing that is true about PTSD that, I, that I've experienced, and this is also true also of bipolar too, um, is that if you have uh, a mental illness and you are reading about something, uh, you're reading something by somebody who also has it, and they don't describe what you have, but they speak with high authority. Sometimes that can feel very alienating, and I want to avoid that. So if, if somebody has a different experience of it, I I completely trust that it, their experience is just as legitimate. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, the title, I think, says it all. It's a great title, by the way, How to Restore a Timeline, because our memories... Um, as much as we'd like to think it's a timeline, you know, from, from uh, the beginning to the end or, or the beginning to where we are, the present, um, our memories don't work like that, do they? No, I, I don't think so. Um, in, in this book, there's an essay about um, the movie and the books that, they, uh, that the movie's based on, uh, The Ring. Uh-huh. And, uh, and through that, I kind of talk about how, um, you know, the act of, Remembering, which is something I do quite a bit for my writing practice. I'm constantly remembering. But, uh, the act of remembering is, uh, an act that you undertake in the present. So every time you remember something, you are also creating a memory of remembering. And, uh, and it all kind of stacks up into a, a really weird sort of, uh, meta condition that can, produce its own kind of anxiety, I think, <laughs> or at least yeah. confusion. Yeah. Um, so then another question that I had as I was reading the book was, was why write the book? I mean, I, 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 I'm answering my own question in terms of I can see why you wrote about it. I mean, why you can't not write about it. But um, if certain things are triggering, do you worry about, say, 
um, how it will affect you as you recount a lot of these things. I mean, you, you, you are kind to yourself, I hope. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, I try to be. I try to practice uh, self-forgiveness and, and, and kindness. Um, but I, the why of it is really interesting to me because it's almost symptomatic for me. Um, almost immediately, like after I got back home from the inciting incident of the book, mm-hmm. seeing my dad get shot on a cruise, it took me a little while. I was like in shock and, and going through some things. But not long after that, I started trying to tell people about it because it was such a big piece of my life that had such intense uh, and painful gravity, I kept feeling like I was being drawn back to this event that uh, was incredibly isolated. It happened, you know, many, many, many miles away. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was very intimate uh, type of violence. And um, I just felt like, uh, I mean... <laughs> The, the the my my reaction is uh, is to say that it, it almost felt like I was going crazy, which you know is, that's not the right term for it, but yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to uh, like I, I had this like this this knee jerk reaction to try and tell people, hey, this happened to me. Hey, this happened to me. Um, please listen about this thing that happened to me, uh, which was uh, I can see now sort of a cry for help, um, and then. Uh, because I was a, a theater artist at the time, I was in theater school, and then I became a theater artist, I kept trying to explore uh, ways of telling this story in my art so uh-huh. that I could tell people and then maybe anchor it in reality. Uh, and that kept not working. Um, I felt like I was not satisfactorily communicating what I was feeling. I was just telling people, hey, this happened. And they'd be like, oh my goodness, that's so terrible. I'm so sorry that happened. And I would feel very empty uh, afterward. And I would say like, oh, I, I would say to myself, this is not um, this is not what I was hoping would happen. Why do I still yeah. feel terrible? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and then uh, it took me this long. I started writing this book two years ago. It's now 17 years since my, my traumatic event um, 15, years, uh, 15 years afterward is when I started writing this version of it where I, I guess I had enough distance and enough experience with the symptoms of it that I was like, oh, I see what's wrong. I'm telling people the story of the trauma, but what I want to tell people is the story of the post-trauma. I want to tell them how I feel now after everything turned out fine. And I'm still in these various states of confusion and suffering. And so that's why in this book, I, I start off by saying, by just getting the, the traumatic event out of the way. Yeah. It's like there's no, there's no suspense. This is what happens. Everything, quote unquote, turns out fine. Um, and then I keep retelling that throughout the, book as well so yeah does that answer your question it, it, it's a bit of a long one no, but, but, um, but it's I, been a journey <laughs> yeah but i think it's that journey that i think will that when people read the book 
they'll find the book useful in a way. It'll give them um, certain pearls of wisdom that, that they might, say, find useful as they navigate trauma, uh, they navigate um, memories that they need to contend with, say. Um, you said a moment ago, Peter, um, that it, it took as long as it did from 2006 to when you started writing the book. Um, you had this distance. For a lot of people, they don't have that luxury, say, of, of, of distance, um, either physically or, or time-wise. Um, what do you say to them? Oh, geez. So in a, in a situation where they're recently traumatized, that's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, um, do you think a book like yours could be helpful to them? I hope so. I hope it, I hope it is. I hope it would be. I would say the distance, the luxury of the distance that I have that allowed me to write it um, was not necessary in order to feel better by mm. consuming media. Uh, I remember um, there were a few pieces of media that at least allegorically um, dealt with what I was feeling. Particularly, there's an episode of the television show Lost called The Constant, which is um, it's uh, in the fourth season. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it, it, it deals with fractured timelines and... Uh, strong allegories for, for PTSD and draws a lot from uh, other post-traumatic uh, work like Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five. That, like, I was, that, I think that came out the February after the shooting uh-huh. and, uh, and that helped me. And so I would say, I would say, I hope that they can see themselves reflected in this and I know it's not necessarily the most hopeful book. It doesn't necessarily give um, a, a narrative of uh, returning to um, normalcy, I suppose. Or before. But I hope that, or yeah, exactly. I would say, I would say to those people, um, you know, you're not alone, and I hope that they have the support systems that they need in order to uh, get the help they need. Um, and I know that that's not true for everybody, and yeah. uh, that kind of thing makes, kind of keeps me up at night uh, knowing that. But, yeah, I, ho- I, hope, I hope that that's the case, that they can find value in, in things. And, and, then, and then know that if they do get far enough away from it, it'll start to make more sense. Mm. I think that's the thing that I... I... I was going to say enjoyed, but that's not the right word. That that I liked about the book is that you would find these things, whether it's Batman, uh, the Batman movies, Final Fantasy, that, that would um, certain music even uh, that would help you enjoy and not enjoy, pardon me, understand uh, what happened to you and what you were going through. Um, because they're there, aren't they? I mean, these are some of these things are things that you had. Um, known or, or consumed earlier, but on, yeah. on on a second viewing or subsequent viewing, I should say, um, they, they talk to, took a new meaning. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Final Fantasy is a really great example. So the the video game I talk about in the in the 
book I write about in the book is Final Fantasy VIII, which came out in things that, and I told you this before we started, are, uh, that you write about in, in the book are not things that I have seen or, 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 or consume on a regular basis, nor uh, do I intend to. But um, you write about these things in such a way, um, an engaging and critical way, that as a reader, I found it just, just enjoyable even to, 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 you know, take in the references and, and um, see how you as a uh, as a person, um, have engaged with work as you have. I mean, this is not something, I mean, at, at times it's something to, to pass the time with, say, but um, you look at it in a way that I think a lot of us should look at art of any kind um, w- with a lens of, of, say, seriousness, if you will. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Um, th- it means <laughs> so much to me to hear that the uh, criticism parts of this are entertaining 
because like I became a nonfiction writer because I, when I was 17, I read a copy of Sex, Drugs, and Cocoa Puffs, and I was like, hold on, people can just write about something that they enjoyed, <laughs> yeah. and I can find it entertaining even if I haven't, uh, if I haven't experienced those things. I was, you know, uh, I'd never seen uh, the real world, and Klosterman writes about the real, real world in that in that book, and I was like, this is, this is amazing, how, how's he doing this, this is entertaining, and and, you know, ever since then, I was, I've always thought, like, uh, criticism is about art, but it is also an art form itself, mm. and I aspire for it to be entertaining. Um, but, you know, even going with the idea of, you know, time and, and memory uh, kind of colliding here, if I go back further, uh, you know, to, like, elementary school, I think one of the things that I've always found... Uh, to be like one of life's great pleasures is sharing something that I like with other people. When I was a kid, I was one of the first kids to get into uh, Pokemon at mm -hmm. my school in the in the early night or in the late nineties, and I was like, I would bring my game to school, I would bring my my cards to school, and I would show people. And then they would get into it, and I, I wanted other people to see what I saw in this thing that I got obsessed with. And Sonic the Hedgehog, Beast Wars, all of the like classic things back then, and that's sort of been the case uh, ever since. And so I think it does come a little bit naturally to me, um, but that's also just something, you know, I can also experience it as, as a reader. I prefer... Uh, when somebody's writing about culture to understand enough about the culture to, to see that they're writing about, to see what's so important about it and why it needs to be there. I, I'm not such a fan of like throwaway references just for aesthetics. Yeah. I really would love to have that engagement, but I also hate the idea of people feeling left out. So I really, you know, that's why at the beginning I tell everybody, Look, I'm going to spoil things for you, but in the end, I'm hoping that it, it's so that they can find value in what I'm saying. Because I'm not, I, you know, I can't, uh, I don't want to be writing about Batman and say, so those of you who have seen this movie will know what I'm talking about <laughs> when I say this was very important to me. <laughs> like, I don't want to alienate people that way. And, so, and, uh, and the other thing that you, you, you don't do in the book, is you don't condescend to us that, that, that you, you have to explain everything because I'm I'm reading a, a collection of essays right now, but by somebody else, um, and um, it seems like they're having to explain every reference they're making, and I can't tell you right. how annoying that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, again, it's like the last thing I want to be is a hypocrite, and so like I, I said again, like I'm trying to. You know, on, on some level, I'm trying to make people cry over Dragon Ball Z. I'm not about to condescend people, you know? Yeah, the, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to give an example because I don't want to give it away. Because it, 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 but, it, for example, they, they use French in their, in their essay. Um, mm -hmm. And, and um, I'm, I'm just I'm making a, an example that's not actually used in the book, but it's, it's as close as I'm going to get. They, they, they say uh, it, it's the soup du jour. 
and then in brackets they put soup of the day. Well, I don't, oh. you don't have to speak French to know what the hell that means. I mean, you could look it up too, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, it's a, that's a common idiom. You see that everywhere you go. But yeah, but that's a good point as well, Joe, is that you can look it up and understanding that, you know, you're writing for a modern audience. Mm, yeah. um, everybody has a phone, you know. <laughs> I, I, I put, I don't speak Spanish, but I put, and I actually mentioned that in the book, but I put Spanish terminology in here because that is the text that, um, there, like there are pieces of that yeah. text that I put in here, mm-hmm. and you know, uh, and there's also some um, some Japanese as well. And those things, it's like if you really want to know uh, what they are, it will take you. That's, if the context doesn't do it for you, yeah. and hopefully the context does, exactly, uh, you can look it up. <laughs> we have we have all that information in our phone, <laughs> and those are in our box. Well, one of the things that I, I, I actually enjoyed about the book is that, that when you talk about certain things that you, you like, that you've consumed, that, that have helped you, um, you mentioned this a moment ago, you know, there were certain things as a kid that you, you like, um, and yet you, you um, it made me think about the stigma about um, the things one likes. I mean, I guess this week we're all Friends fans. But I can recall 18 months ago, uh, people saying, you know, wouldn't would not admit that they they'd watch Friends in every episode of Friends because because there is a certain right. stigma with, with with certain things that one likes or, or one you know one's obsessed with. That's something that that we as a culture need to overcome. I mean, there, there are a lot of snobs amongst us in terms of, of what's acceptable to even talk about, right? Absolutely. Uh- one well, and Friends is interesting too because I think that people who would not admit to Friends, I would imagine watching Friends. Yeah. I would imagine it's because it was the most popular sitcom of mm, its time, right. and there's a there's a sort of a cultural cachet, I would say, or at least there used to be. I I can't speak for the most important demographics these days. The Gen Zs might feel differently, but um, at least. You know, for as speaking as a millennial, I think that there's a there's a uh, coolness that people can uh, make a shorthand uh, and, and find a shortcut towards by essentially rejecting the mainstream. Right. Um, you know, you could even actually you could even see this right now. It's like there are people who you know might uh, turn up their nose at Taylor Swift right. simply because she's the most popular music artist right now. Um, and they, they would hope that that just positions them against that monoculture. Um, and then meanwhile, they're listening to uh, 1989 on repeat, but they won't tell anyone. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and, you know, those, those, people, those people do exist. Um, but, yeah, I would say, I mean, I engage with the, that in, very specifically in the title essay of this book uh, with the music of Linkin Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lincoln Park was a huge, they were a huge band. Um, their lead singer, Chester Bennington, um, he, he, uh, died by suicide, um, not too long ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it wasn't until he died that I felt comfortable saying, I'm a lifelong Lincoln Park fan. Um, and I know that that carries a stigma. I, but, being able to admit that 
which was honestly harder to admit than admitting that I have two serious mental illnesses, <laughs> like, which also have stigma. It's like I, I was less comfortable talking about how much I like the <laughs> remix album uh, reanimation than I did saying, like, oh, I tried to kill myself because I have bipolar 2. I was like, uh, that's easy. Saying that I like <laughs> the song Crawling is hard. So, uh, but uh, when I was able to do that, it's, it's actually similar to other forms of stigma, is when you allow stigma and you allow shame to prevent you from discussing uh, things that are a part of your life, then you cut yourself off from really appreciating them. Yeah. So much of our culture is talking about and um, articulating the emotions that the art makes us feel. And you can only really do that when you do that without shame and without expectation. And I should say this as a person who's like, I'm very much also a hater of culture. I don't think that we all need to support everything that everybody likes. I just think that we all need to understand that yeah. culture is culture. And if there's a lot to be learned from even stuff you don't like. Um, so, you know, yeah, just got to just gotta talk about it. It's like, it's it like, is weird. It, yeah, it's like ahead. having a good diet. Um, yeah, you, you need to have you need to know what's going on in the world around you. Otherwise, you know, why bother talking about the world around you? Say, mm -hmm. exactly. Yeah, that's it's you know, there's not a lot of reasons uh, that we're on this uh, this planet. But I would say, at least from an individual person, I, I don't know. I would say, like, you know, we want to make the world better for each other and then satisfy our curiosity. <laughs> and those are things that you can do without, uh, without shame. Yeah. Only, you, those are things you can only do without shame. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I wondered um, uh, why at the end of the book there wasn't sort of a playlist or, or a, uh, um, a list even of just things that we should see or, or, or that would, say, accompany this book well. Is that something no. you've thought about? Yeah, it was actually really tough. Um, well, I mean, when I was pitching the book, well, actually when I was like conceptualizing the book before the pitch, I listed, a, I did make a list of all of the culture that I wanted to talk about. And then I ended up adding some in because I saw some stuff while I was writing it. Um, I, I think the reason that there's no appendix uh, for it, and like, you know, if, if you think that this is something people would want, I'll, I'll put it online. Yeah. Um, I, I go, I go under the, uh, the basic assumption, and this is true of my previous book as well, which is a, a book of essays on horror. Anything that I write about, um, it's not necessarily going to be something that I fully endorse as something that I love, but is absolutely worth checking out. So, uh, so that list is the book. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I should just, uh, as yeah. I was reading it, I should have written these things down and, and um, yeah. say, added Twin Peaks or Back to the Future to my list of things to watch one day, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, here's the other thing, too, is, like, I'm uh, terminally online, and so if, uh, and my favorite thing, is, uh, as it is with many people uh, who do what I do, is to uh, recommend things to people. So uh, you, you have me on Instagram. Yeah. Just DM me if you want a recommendation, and I'll be like, hey, yeah. check out some peaks. 
There you go. That's what I'll do. I'll do that. I'll do that next week. Um, Perfect. A couple of other things that I was thinking about as I was reading the book: um, dreams. Um, mm-hmm. I don't get enough sleep, so I don't get to that point where I have uh, many dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I can see um, what a loss that is in one's life. Uh, do you dream regularly? Uh, yes. I think I dream more more nights than I don't. I dream. And and what is the relationship then with memory? Because that's something that you talk about in the book. And, and, and as somebody who doesn't dream enough, um, this week is actually I've, I've gotten to the point where I've had dreams the last couple of nights. And I, I found it disturbing in a way. <laughs> I, I, yeah, it's often disturbing. I, I'm not a person who, like, when people are like, oh, you know, in my wildest dreams, like, my wildest dreams are not things that I find. <laughs> <laughs> They're weird and unpleasant. Yeah, I mean, and, yeah. and it was almost a way, like, I just really want to sleep. I remember telling myself that in the middle of a dream. <laughs> that mm-hmm. I, I just want yeah. to sleep. I need sleep this week. And um, I don't need to remember or, or, or go through whatever, you know, I was being chased by something. Um, I don't need this at the moment. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or the worst thing, sometimes I'll get dreams where I'm anxious about something I have to do the next day. Mm. And I will have a dream where I'm doing the thing that I'm supposed to do. And then I'll wake up and I'll realize I didn't actually do it. And so I have to do it, do it again. Yeah. But it's real this time. And I'm like, oh, great. So not only am I super tired. But I feel like I've already done this, and I have yeah, yeah. extra absurd or redundant. Um, so, in terms of memory, yeah. though, did, did you, do you find that um, dreams uh, screw up the timeline, or, or, or even say clarify some of the memories? I think that they. I don't think that they clarify the memory. I don't think that any of my dreams, certainly not the ones in that I uh, represent in the book, which are all recurring nightmares, essentially. Yeah. I have a, a few recurring nightmares, and those are the ones that I put in the, in the book. Um, those, I think what they do is, through analysis and, combu- and treating them as sort of supplementary to my memories, maybe a weird way to talk about dreams, but <laughs> welcome, in, welcome into the writing process. Keeping them separately, I think that they help so, um, solidify in my mind and like my my uh, in my conception of my own personal history and and how I how I'm and my own relationship to my memories. They help me understand um, what parts of my memories seem to be the most impactful. So, for instance, um, the first time I talk about dreams, I believe, is in an essay called My Own Personal Overlook, which is about my recurring dreams that happen on cruise ships. Mm-hmm. And um, it's through understanding the um, repeated elements throughout those dreams that I'm sort of able to look at the for instance, the floor plans of the cruise ship that I actually was on when the shooting happened, yeah. and sort of uh, sort of understand how the archive of my memory and 
my emotions uh, have placed importance on certain things in those in the in the real ship and in my real life um, and it's kind of difficult like I might sound like I'm rambling a bit it's kind of difficult because it's a real soft focus relationship but um, this is also kind of something that I've been you know for this book I did uh, not an insignificant amount of research on the occult uh-huh. uh, for, for some later essays in the book and um, I think that it's okay to not know the direct connection and to just feel it out on vibes. I think that there's still, there's still, uh, there's still stuff there. So I would say, like, uh, you know, I wouldn't, obvious, there's a, there is some sort of obvious strong connection between memory and dreams. Yeah. Um, but the closest I can get to articulating it is by presenting them side by side. It's, uh, <laughs> you're kind of feeling around yeah. with your eyes closed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good way to put it because your eyes are closed <laughs> when you are asleep. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Um, revenge is something that you you talk about in the book, and um, you contend with say the, the rational and not so rational ideas of how to exact revenge. Um, we'd like to our, our minds go to revenge a lot <laughs> more than we'd like to admit sometimes. Uh, in your yeah. case. Um, uh, this is the great thing about the book. You, you talk about the various degrees. Some days, um, they're stronger than others, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, some days they are stronger than others, but I think you know, in the end, our our desire, however strong it is for revenge, is closer to the side of that mirror world of media than it is of real life. Mm. Um, I, revenge is a, is a type of story that we tell, but life is not so linear and neat, and, uh, and it is a, it's a tough relationship we have with that narrative especially given that we've been telling revenge stories for thousands of years, and very, very rarely are we told, that'll give you exactly what you want. <laughs> At least none of the famous ones yeah. do that. And yet we still have, have to contend with that, that weird relationship, that, that, that feeling that we've um, had something taken from us and, have a longing. I don't know. When I was writing that one, and I wrote that kind of in conjunction with another essay called This to Talk a Man is Happy, uh-huh. um, it, it helped me kind of articulate my relationship to the shooter and kind of self-interrogate through that relationship, understanding what it is I blame him for, yeah, and uh, and then inevitably understanding that this is a this is just like a a memory that I of a of a person I was in the presence of for probably like ninety seconds, <laughs> uh, and uh, and that that's 
that's not enough to to know somebody in order to like really try and hurt them, yeah. especially when it's so hard to quantify what they took from you. Um, yeah. So, do you think that's the distance of time that's allowed you to get there, or is it, say, growth, personal growth? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think it's. I think that if if things turned out worse, like I am, I am really lucky <laughs> yeah. that overall. I, and I think that you know part of the reason why I developed PTSD in my own perception of it was that. It was essentially one very bad day, and then, uh, as far as I was concerned, nothing bad happened after that, and there was no lasting uh, effect. If my dad died that day, I probably wouldn't have been able to get to that point. Um, You know, I grew up Catholic, and so I have a lot of guilt in general, Uh but when it comes to the very fact that you know there are there are class issues that are um, I get issues probably isn't the right word but there's a, there's an element of class to the uh, the violence that I experienced yeah. and I was on the immoral side of that divide uh, is something that I think especially given that nobody died uh, really kind of absolves the uh, the shooter. I'm only speaking for myself. Obviously, my dad's the one who got shot. Yeah, yeah. He can talk to you in other ways yeah. <laughs> about that. But yeah, so uh, yeah, without without rambling too much longer on the topic, I, uh, because it is a good question. I've never really thought about it too much. I think it's a combination of both, um, of both growth of character and a distance of time. But those are those are things that are are connected you know yeah. i would hope that over time my, my character grew exactly um, yeah as yeah. one gets older yeah um, yeah yeah you'd hope so yeah um i, I want to talk about noise because because you mentioned it a moment ago and and um but in in a way I'd, i i i don't want to talk about it because noise is something that that um that that i'm afraid of i've never heard a gun go off say and right um i I'm, I'm, I'm quite afraid of it because I, it is quite loud, isn't it? Um, you, you know, I've, I've heard guns go off in movies, and right. it's usually louder than. And so I, I, I've always, um, when I go into to, to say a Walmart in the United States, I'm mm-hmm. I'm not afraid as much of <laughs> say getting shot as the noise that I'll hear if that were to happen. I guess I'm, I'm trying to work something out here on my own. Um, <laughs> what is it like for you? I mean, you mentioned earlier that that, that, that certain noises are triggering. Um, yeah. Um, the, the trauma of noise is just fascinating as I was reading the book. I would say it's uh, – well, the, the thing that's, that's really interesting, Joe, is that the noise that you hear in TV – that that's not the actual sound uh what a gun actually sounds like no it's much closer <laughs> to fireworks or pops balloons yeah um which are the like those are like the classic triggers for people with gun violence ptsd 
uh, you know, a lot of people uh, who've, who've experienced gun violence really hate the sound of fireworks, uh, really hate the sound of, of uh, balloons popping. In terms of noise, something that I uh, kind of discovered while writing this book about my relationship to noise and triggers is um, while fireworks still really start to, um, they sort of get the, the PTSD engine turning over, essentially. Yeah. Um, and, and the same is true for, uh, for, for balloons popping. I think some of it has to do uh, with the unexpected situation mm. and a bit of a surprise. Yeah. Uh, you know, not being able to, to uh, anticipate a very similar explosive pop, um, that is what does it. And, and why the reason I'm spending so much time talking about this is because for this book, I uh, went with my brother and two friends to a gun range to actually see what it was like to fire handguns. And everybody had been warning me. They're like, I don't know if you should do this. That sounds not so great. And I was like, well, I have to. I'm going to write about it. But I was hearing them out, and I was really worried because I was like, you know, if, if um, balloons popping and fireworks going off make me feel like I might need a sick day at work the next day yeah, because yeah. they're so effective, what's it going to feel like being around actual gunfire? And it turned out being in that sense, that controlled space it didn't affect me at all. Um, so it is, I think, really situational. And I didn't, I did not expect that um, at all. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah I, I, I does that to, answer your question? Yeah, it does, yeah. because it, it reminded me of, um, they had, um, at work, this is a while ago now, they had, um, uh, it was someone's birthday, so they had uh, uh, a cake and, and someone brought in balloons. And the minute mm-hmm. I saw the balloons, because, you know, the people horse around and they'll get a pin or something and, and start, you know, because, you know, the minute that they blow out the candles, someone will want to pop a balloon. I had to leave the room. Um, yeah. <laughs> not because of the cake, but because of the, the, the balloons. And I thought um, it, it's the unexpectedness of it, I think, that I need to deal with. Um, and it's a very sharp sound. Yeah. Like, it is an explosion. And... Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think it's different for the people who are popping them. <laughs> yeah. But when when you're not in control, there you're not in that driver's seat or pulling the trigger, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I should just get a bunch of balloons and start popping them and see how I enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of exposure therapy. I don't endorse that. But <laughs> if you do that, let me know if it works. <laughs> um, I, I was going to ask you, Peter if you're better off for having written this book, but it, but it, as I'm reading it as a reader, I, I, I feel better off having read it. Um, I can't help but think that, that, um, you might've gleaned some comfort now that it's out in the world. Have you? Well, I'm, the comforting thing is hearing things like what you just said. Um, knowing that people find this helpful, it makes me feel really, um, I really appreciate it whenever somebody comes up to me who's read it, or maybe they'll they'll message me on uh, through my website or on social media, and they'll they'll 
tell me that it meant a lot to me. And that has helped me understand that uh, I've been able to take this thing that's been plaguing me for almost half my life now and uh, turn it into something positive for other people without having to lie to them and say and, like, put an optimistic spin on it because, you know, um, sometimes people have called my writing bleak and I would say, yes, that's a, a defining feature of my, of my work is that is, I have a, a pretty bleak outlook. But um, so I, I think that, that that helps. In terms of how it's affected me, it might be a little too early mm. for me to say. Uh, but that having been said, I'm really proud of it. Like, I've been trying to tell this story for a really long time. And like I said, I just, it, it was, I was telling the wrong version of it. I feel like this time I told it in such a complete way because in, in one sense I told the, told the story uh, like 28, 29 different times mm -hmm. and found a new thing to say about it. I feel like it's been so complete and I feel like I really did put a piece of myself into it that I, I, I hope that this will at least help me feel satisfied with how I told this story and how I communicated these thoughts. I'm, I'm long past believing that I'll be able to do something and everything will go away. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, a, I think it's like the third last chapter, Tetraminos. Um, we're talking about Tetris and chess and all of these things that you can get obsessed over and distractions. You know, you can't erase the past and therefore there's always going to be something that's going to linger. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I felt like I was building up to something there, but I think this is maybe even indicative of the condition itself. You know, I was I was trying to build towards something hopeful, but in the end, I started even just now thinking, "Oh, I feel like I might miss it. Mm. <laughs> like, who am I without it?" <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I. The short answer is, I feel very proud of this book. I feel very happy that it's out there. It was a difficult thing to write. It, I'm very grateful that people seem to be finding a lot of value in it um, and finding it entertaining. And I am confident that at least the next book that I write will not be about my PTSD. <laughs> you, you should be so very, there you, go. you should be very proud, Peter, because it is a very fine achievement. Uh, before I let you Thank go, you. just one last question. How, how have um, the other people involved, because this is your story, this is, this is, um, mm -hmm. You're writing about your experiences, but, but there are other people involved, obviously, your father, your brother, mm -hmm. your mother. Um, how have they reacted to, say, your description of events that they've been a part of? Oh, my gosh. Um, they have been so incredibly supportive, and I am uh, unspeakably grateful for that. Um, I went into this project um, 
with their blessing, but also under the uh, understanding that I would make it very clear in the book that this is my version of events, not their version of events. I did interview them all, Mm -hmm. particularly about the dinner that we had the night after, or the the night of the shooting. So that was shot around 11 a.m. and we had dinner. Um, And so I did get some of that um, perspective to to bring into it. And through that, I did get, you know, as with everything, some minor conflicting accounts of... uh, of how certain things went mm-hmm. on a microscopic detail um, just around the dinner. Um, and then that stuff, you know, didn't even end up in the book. <laughs> but uh, I think, yeah, the, they're, they're very supportive. They're very happy. And I know that a lot of people in my situation can't count on that, but I think that that's maybe the most hopeful thing of everything is, is this event and the subsequent years of processing it have brought us all very close together. Yeah. Um, you know, it, we're recording this in early November. In mid-November, I'm going to have a, a launch in Toronto, uh-huh. and they're all going to be there. They're all going to be there to support me, and that's pretty exciting considering the the content of the book that said you know i hope that they all come off as as great people because they are <laughs> so well well you've come across yeah. in the book as a good person so um, oh well thank you i uh <laughs> i'm I, more concerned about them but uh, i appreciate <laughs> that too well i appreciate your time today because i've kept you longer than i said i would congratulations oh, peter no on on this this book as i said a moment ago it's a very fine achievement and continue good luck with it Thank you very much, Joe. This has been a pleasure. Um, Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I'm a a big fan, so this meant a lot. The websites for more are at peterbcounter.com and everythingiscary.com. The book is called How to Restore a Timeline on Violence and Memory. It's uh, published by House of Anansi Press. It's author Peter Counter. Join me on the line from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.